And so we continue in uh, 1 Timothy together uh, with readings this morning from both chapter 2 and chapter 3. And I begin in chapter 2 in the first verse. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving may be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. I desire then that in every place, that men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves and respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. And then in chapter 3, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife sober-minded and self-controlled and respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household with all dignity, helping his, keep his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will we care for that God's church? He must be a recent, not be a recent convert or maybe puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of of outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the church. And all this, we say, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so as we dig into this day, chapters 2 and 3 of 1 Timothy, we begin where I told you we would begin uh, with that question. Where are the roadblocks in your faith? Where are the roadblocks to coming to the Word of God? What are the roadblocks that keep you from coming under God's Word 
anytime or in this text in particular? Are the roadblocks big questions? Are the roadblocks uh, questions that you have of this text or questions you have of the Bible? Are the roadblocks practical about how to live in this world? About daily life? Or are the roadblocks heart issues? Or maybe, maybe they're, they're all three or a combination thereof. And so today we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to move out of the way for us these roadblocks. We pray so that we can actually get into the text of 1 Timothy and hear what God has to say to us. What he's calling us to hear so that those roadblocks don't become stumbling blocks in our faith. And I hope uh, not stumbling blocks for me to trip over again while I'm preaching as I did on Saturday night. But as we ask the Holy Spirit to move those roadblocks out of the way, we come to the text and we'll tackle each of those big questions, practical issues, and matters of the heart. Let's begin in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy with some of those big questions. And as we have uh, last week and as we'll continue to do, we'll use some of those questions that Dan Kimball asks of the text in his book, How Not to Read the Bible. And there he invites us to consider, once again, one of the stumbling blocks for many of those who don't yet believe or those who want to reject the Bible is to say, well, this, this text here, you just come to 1 Timothy to discover, you'll find out that the, the God's against women. And, and if, if not God, then, then most certainly Christians, because all you have to do is read their Bible, and you'll find out that indeed, just look at these memes. Or just turn to, to verse 15, as we come back to 1 Timothy, as we come back to 1 Timothy in verse 15, we hear this unusual, strange to our ears text. It says this, that women will be saved in childbearing. Well, what could that possibly mean? Sandwiched right in there between the readings that you heard in chapter 2 and chapter 3. What could it possibly mean? So as we come to this text in 1 Timothy today, we come to passages of the Bible that often are roadblocks for us. Roadblocks that keep us from hearing what God actually wants us to hear because of assumptions we make of the text. But here again, I'll say it over and over again, the Bible is God's word and we come under it. And so as we explore it and don't understand what it means for us, it doesn't mean we dismiss it. But we come and listen to it. And it's not that as uh, the, the memes will sometimes show you like this one or like this one or if you happen to pull up behind this guy's pickup truck, right? 
Uh, and we do these shot in the dark uh, passages. It's not that these passages aren't the word of God. They most certainly are. But out of context, we miss the message of the whole of Scripture. In fact, just to help uh, move some of those roadblocks out of the way, I'm going to take a few moments to talk about what God does in this text and what God does as He comes to women. Because as we look at the whole of Scripture... We discover, first of all, in verse 15 that says women will be saved by childbearing. All you have to do is go back to verse 5, 10 verses earlier. And excuse the typo, I noticed it and I didn't have time to fix it between services today. But in verse 5, it is telling us that we are saved by Christ Jesus the mediator of our faith, who ransomed himself for us. So it's not our actions that save us. It's God's actions. So that tells us right away in verse 15, that can't be a means of salvation. But look at the whole of Scripture, and you'll begin to see that very quickly. Even in the Old Testament, in Habakkuk chapter 2, we're saved by faith. Ephesians chapter 2, written by The same guy, uh, Paul, who writes to Timothy, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of any works, not of anything you can do. So, as commentators, and even the most conservative commentators will say of verse 15 in chapter 2 of Timothy, uh, you'll hear phrases like, this passage is notoriously difficult to know how to interpret. But that notorious Difficulty doesn't mean it's not scripture, doesn't mean we don't come under it. But what we do is, as Luther taught and many before and after him have, that we understand the scriptures that are unclear in light of the scriptures that are crystal clear. And so, although in full transparency, I can't today tell you precisely how to interpret verse 15, I can very clearly tell you how not to interpret it based on the rest of Scripture. We already have seen it's not an act of salvation. So what is it? Is it a demeaning of women as those who come to the text without faith suggest? Well, that can't be so. All you have to do is go back to the beginning in Genesis and you'll discover when you hear these strange words, as Dan Kimball will point out in his book, How Not to Read the Bible, of of Eve coming from the rib of Adam, right? And becoming a helper. And then we interpret that word helper as demeaning. In fact, soon to discover that word for helper in Hebrew is a significant, powerful word. In fact, as Dan will write, a word sometimes used to describe God himself. And moreover, the same word to use to describe the two sides of the Ark of the Covenant. Holding up God's promises. What do you have? You have men and women coming to God's presence 
opening up and holding up each side. But that's not enough. Just go to the Ten Commandments. As you go to the Ten Commandments, as they were recapped in 1 Timothy last week, we can come to them now and we hear God say, honor your father and mother. He doesn't limit it in a patriarchal society to just men. It is both. But we're not done yet. We continue through the Old Testament and we certainly can see some texts that sound crazy to our ears and, and seem to our eyes. But remember, are these texts de- Descriptive or prescriptive of the human condition. We get an usher in to the New Testament, and because the sermon's only 20 minutes and not 55 minutes, I'll only give you a few examples today. But as we get into the New Testament, we hear God at work and see Jesus at work in the lives of women. It becomes crystal clear when who announces the resurrection, the greatest truth of human history, first. God uses the first evangelists to be women. Jesus does that. But if you think, well, that's just Jesus and not the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, he's, he's down on women in 1 Timothy. Well, push pause on that for a moment because wait for it. it when he tells women to be quiet in this text... As Dan Kimball point out, scholar Scott McKnight points out, it seems like it's less about gender and more about learning before teaching. But that's not all. Paul will even celebrate the prophecy of women in church. So obviously he's not talking about uh, a strict power struggle here. And he even goes further. The Apostle Paul tells us of a apostle, a female apostle in Romans chapter 16. And as scholar N.T. Wright will point out, who does Paul use to take his uh, letter to the Romans and all of that great doctrine and theology therein to deliver that? Read chapter 16 for yourselves in Romans. It's a, it's a woman. Why does that matter? Well, because the person who delivered it wasn't just a postal carrier, not that Postal carriers are just, right? But someone who is also, therefore, the person to read it and teach it to the churches when they carried it there. And so we see in the whole of Scripture, and then, of course, you've got Romans. I mean, not just Romans, but Galatians, the same author in uh, 1 Timothy, who says, in Christ there's neither male nor female, among other things, all are one in Christ Jesus. So friends, we interpret the unclear passages with the crystal clear and the whole of Scripture. So we come and move out of the way of this idea that God is somehow down on women. Instead, God in a Roman Greco culture was lifting both men and women up for the gospel. And scholar Stark points out that women uh, were rushing into, in the first century to the church because of the honor that they received. You see that honor in the Old Testament from Proverbs 31 all the way to the New, by Jesus, New Testament by Jesus himself. 
So how do we interpret passages like we hear in 1 Timothy in verse 15? Well, as we come to this text again here, we certainly know it's not as a means of salvation because the scripture is clear about that. It's certainly not in a means of power or demeaning because the scripture is clear about that. It seems like more like in the context, I like how one scholar pointed out as he quotes some of the church fathers and Solomon concludes that the natural work as he talks about done in faith are meritorious for eternal life. What they mean by that is that the, the, the natural expression of our faith gets lived out in the daily things of life. Could be one faithful interpretation of verse 15. The point is this. It makes sense because the rest of this chapter in chapter 2 and chapter 3 tell us how to live out the household of God in practical life. So let's look at those practical issues that get revealed here. Begins in the beginning of chapter 2 on how we should relate to authorities and governing bodies over us. That we should be praying for them. Now folks love to quote uh, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4 when the person they like is in charge, right? Right? Uh, and kind of forget about it when the person they don't like is in charge. By the way, Apostle Paul wrote this, God gave us this word while folks like Nero were in charge. You know, the same emperor who would later, you know, put Christians to persecution years later. So we're not talking like happy, friendly Uh, Christian-friendly leaders that he's talking about here, right? But he says to pray for those in authority over us. So we get some real practical advice about how to deal with society and government. We're called as Christians to pray. That's why from this altar, whoever may be in leadership, we pray for. Under the command of God's word. But that's not all in chapter 2 and chapter 3. It continues the practical application that is. The practical application continues in in how to live as husband and wife, pointing back to creation and submitting to one another in service to God. And he wasn't done there. He even goes on into chapter 3. And by the way, this is what it looks like for leadership in the church as a witness to the gospel. It gets very practical in chapters two and three if we have ears to hear about how to live in godliness and submission to the Lord Jesus. About how to live out our daily vocation for the kingdom of God. But let's get even more fine pointed here. As we move uh, from these practical issues of government, of family, of church, to matters of the heart. 
matters of your heart and mine. And that takes us to verses 8, 9, and 10 of chapter 2, which become the centerpiece uh, uh, in many ways of chapter 2 that we ought to hear. And tells us specifically, he uses the word for men, not in general as humankind here in verse 8, but as men, that we should pray. Some translations function, uh, emphasize the lifting up of hands, and that's true too, but the emphasis is not on the lifting. The emphasis in that sentence is in the Greek is on the praying. And so what does it look like for men to be submissive and obedient to their Lord Jesus, who is the one God, the one mediator for our faith, the one, verse 4 says, who wants all to receive the gospel? What does that look like? It looks like praying. Now, I, don't, I like how Philip Jensen, who I introduced to you last week, a scholar from Australia, asked the question of the text. He says, I don't know if, if the Apostle Paul here, if God is inviting this invitation and call for men to pray as a special ministry of prayer. The text doesn't tell us. Or if it's just because we're so bad at it that he reminds us that we need to pray. Because we know that all people, men and women, all people of God are called to pray. So why this special invitation? We don't know the answer to that question. We just know the call to submission, the call to godliness for men here is to pray. But then he doesn't just stop there. He goes in verses 9 and 10 and tells women to be part of God's call of godliness as well. How does he ask women to do that. Well, as a scholar put it, he uses this strange word in the midst of that text here in 1 Timothy of self-control. Now, this word self-control means one thing in English, but the, the Greek word really is picking up on an idea, and he picks up on it again in the next chapter for leaders of the church, of godly wisdom. If we unpack that word more deeply, we find ourselves discovering that women are called to adorn this godly wisdom. So they submit to the Lord by being a witness to his wisdom, as opposed to adorning themselves like in the Greek-Roman era, as scholars point out. At the time, there was all this pagan practices of worship of Athena and the goddess Diana and all of these things. And they would adorn themselves and, uh, with jewelry and outfits. And it, it, it gets weirder. We could talk more about it. As opposed to what it looks like in the world, women are adorned themselves with the self-control of God's wisdom. And look what happens there. Men are to submit to the Lord. Women are to submit to the Lord in godliness. And they both become witnesses. As one scholar points out, it's just actually an affirmation of personhood for both men and women, unusual in that culture. To be a witness. So let's get back to what is clear. And the matters of the heart as we 
I pray by the help of God's Holy Spirit and move some roadblocks out of the way. Paul is asking, God is asking both men and women to be different than the culture that they live in. Is your submission, I'm talking to you and to me now, is your submission as we hear this text to Christ reflecting a holiness and an attitude different than the culture that you live in? What defines you? Is it your station in life? Is it your job? Is it your family? Or is it Christ? And is Christ the Lord of your life? Are you submitting to Him and His Word? Every dot, every word, even the parts you don't understand. I like, again, let me say again what Philip Johnson brings to the text. Philip Jensen, he says, he loves it when he comes to a portion of Scripture that he doesn't understand. This is a biblical scholar there. Because he realizes when he admits he doesn't understand it, he admits he doesn't get it right, and therefore he has the ability then to repent and come under it. Even if it takes years, years of coming under that word to finally know how it should be revealed in our lives, we come under every bit of the word of God. Don't let the roadblocks of big questions, although it's important to ask questions, but don't let them become roadblocks to the word of God. Don't let the roadblocks of practical application or the roadblocks of your heart and unwillingness to submit to keep you from what God is calling you to. And what is he calling to you? Verse four, chapter two, the gospel. And who is it that makes you godly as this chapter invites us to live godly lives? It's the one God, the one mediator between us and God. Verse five, Christ Jesus, who what? Gave himself as a ransom for all. This is the testimony. And under that good news of the gospel, and in our daily vocation in lives, we're called to live godly lives, submitting to the Lord Jesus. Are you submitting to the Lord Jesus? Are you, like all of us, need to be reminded again to repent and receive the good news of the gospel? This is the call, the household of faith, to live in godliness and submission to true doctrine with the aim, remember we heard last week, the aim of love. So dear friends, Jesus has ransomed himself for you. Ransomed himself. The God of the universe has ransomed himself for you so that you can receive this gift. And so that we can live under it and by it and through it and for it to the world around us so that we can share this good news of the gospel.
let us come to this good news and live under it and live by it just as his word calls us to in the name of Jesus. Amen.